Hello and welcome to episode 207 of What Most People Think. And I know that I'm really pushing my luck with the cricket here, but I'm recording this on the Monday after England won on the Sunday. And how about those England lads, eh? We won it hard but fair. We played hard but fair. <laughs> I will be talking about the cricket more in a minute. I'm, I'm aware that I have to ration it because I just can't afford to lose listeners. Uh, I hope you're good. I hope you've been having a, a good weekend. I am, look, I'm being popular. I'm being popular? Positive here. Positive. And I, there's, there's a new, I don't know if you've heard, but there's a new alternative to Twitter called Threads. I mean, it's just the biggest ripoff in the world. Do you know what I mean? They call it Threads. Like they've just ripped off the fucking layout, everything. Someone's going to get sued, but I, I, I'm here for it in the meantime. It should be a laugh. I mean, it's almost like if you was to do, you know, you've got Instagram. It's almost like if you used to do another photo website called Photo. You go, that's just, no, no, it's completely different. Uh, it's completely, photo. You've just, you've literally got a fucking picture of a camera. It's the same colours. Uh, but the thing with this, this threads thing is where Twitter has got a reputation for being toxic. It's so toxic, you know, all, which all depends on how seriously you, you decide to take people just writing, anonymous people writing stupid shit. But, um, I found the thread thing. I have joined it. So if you don't do Twitter and you want a Twitter type thing, then you could go to Instagram and find my threads account. Fuck. I mean, I'll be honest. I hope it fails. I do hope it fails because it's just more places you have to post fucking stuff. It's a pain in the ass. So I hope it fails, but I can't afford to, to not be on side if it does take off. And um, it's so positive over there. It's really weird. Like, it made me realise that maybe Twitter isn't so bad because you've got all these pricks on threads going, hi, guys, hope, how's everyone doing this morning? You know, a public... Basically, that's a public figure who's got fuck all to say. How, how are we this morning, peeps? How's it going, peep tweeps? So I want everybody to tell me, what's your favourite kind of granola? I'm like, my God, is this what threads is going to be? Is it going to be like the equivalent of sort of FM radio in the... <laughs> In the not early 90s, you remember when Smashy and Nicey, hey everybody, how's it going? I hope you're having a tip-top morning. God, hello mate. Um, so I, I don't like threads. I'm just going to slag it off the whole time I'm there. I'm going to be I'm going to be negative when I'm there. You know, because as I said in one of my first threads posts, is that no comedian has ever, ever got a laugh out of telling you how onside they were with something. You know, no comedian has ever said, oh, have you ever noticed air, airports... And airline food, I really like them. You know what I mean? Like, th that is not the basis of humour. So let's see how it goes. Um, this is what most people think. This is the podcast, the topical and discussion podcast that comes from slightly to the right of centre, mostly uh, on political and social issues. But this week, every so often, I like to go back the other way, you know, go across the political divide and speak to somebody with a very different political view. We had Owen Jones in the past. We've had various left-wing people. And Aaron Bastani, the luxury communist himself. Now... He has been, you know, a sort of, no, I wouldn't say controversial figure, but he's certainly, he's had his battles with all sides of the political um, divide. But I was always interested with those guys like Owen 
and Ash Sarkar. You know, they were a genuinely new wave of political sort of commentary out that came about with Corbyn and stuff. And I, I just think he's sort of, uh, as he says in the interview, you know, he's matured himself and he, he, he finds himself as an interesting critic of where Labour are at, right? And as I tried to put an analogy to him as to why maybe the left are the best critics of the left. So you, I, think you'll, uh, I think you'll enjoy it. And I think that there's a lot... You know, Starmer almost certainly is going to be our next prime minister at this stage, and I think that there's a lot, there's a lot to get your teeth into there. You know, it's rare that you have such a clear view this far out of who the next leader is going to be. So why not start holding them to account now? Do you know what I mean? Let let let, let little Rishi have some fun, right? He's just making memories, little Rishi. These all. <laughs> Meeting Biden, it's just stuff for his scrapbook, isn't it? Only one of them is going to remember that meeting. Okay, new patrons. I've got to say to the Patreon community, stand by your beds, listen up and listen good because there is something in the works, man. There's something coming up. It's not going to be in next week or even two weeks, but I'm working on something. And I've always wanted to find a way of improving the offer to the people who've supported this podcast right from, you know, the moment we went into lockdown uh, to make it like better, I'm a, I'm aware that a lot of it is by your good grace. Of course, you get your name shouted out. Of course, you get immediate access to free stand up specials. Of course, you get your Patreon only episode every month. But I want something for it that every week you're getting a benefit from being a patron. So to make sure that you stick around for the next couple of months because there's there's things in the works. Okay, uh, our new patrons. On that note, we've got Alex Yudin. Alex, Alex Yudin. That does sound like a Russian name. Is it Russian? Alex Yudin. Maybe you're like a, a spy and you forgot to, like you, you made one part of your name like inconspicuous but didn't do the other. Like your name's Yevgeny Yudin. And you put Alex Yudin. Oh shit, fuck. <laughs> Alex Yudin. It must have, like maybe... For the Russians, you're you're in charge of keeping an eye on podcasts. Make sure they're not, you know, getting out of hand with the built-in jokes. Um, Frederick Payne, I mean, you just get to be called Mr. Payne. I'm sure that that is intriguing when you're on a dating website. Is that is, is that a reputation or is it was it emotional or physical pain? Good pain or bad pain? Mr. It's Mr. Payne. Mr. Payne. Frederick Payne. Uh, good to have you on board, Frederick. Uh, Matthew Wright, who I think is one of those people that gets bumped out routinely by Patreon. And then Kevin Greenhaller. Um, so Kevin, I said his name last week. He also got bumped out, but I thought I'd try his name again. Let's, um, we are now on a fourth attempt to say Kevin's name. Kevin Greenhig. Kevin Kevin here. Um, whatever, man. Like, just, just fucking change the way that your name's spelt. Just change your name. If you want your name to be read out correctly, then change it to a phonetic spelling and stop being a tart. Okay, the main talking point. Uh, we had a couple of actually emails just before we get to David Domain, our super patron, who's been with us right since the since the beginning and gives feedback on the previous week's uh, uh, podcast. And last week was a solo episode, I think, reacting to stuff in Paris and uh, the cricket, which will still be a good listen. I mean, that was arrogant. It's only me speaking on it, but you know... It's, uh, it's, uh, I like talking. What can I say? Um, so we got letters. Um, one of the things I brought up in that podcast was about sporting teams that are not associated with good, like impressive animals. I can't remember what the, the jumping off point was, but you know, like for example, if, if you, if you're called the, the Worcester weasels, you know what I mean? Like that, you, you generally want to be like, oh, that's in Miami dolphins. I was saying Miami dolphins, great team. People like Miami, they like dolphins. So, 
Um, a lot of people emailed in to tell me um, about their sporting clubs that don't have impressive animals. Uh, he's a guy called Jack says that his local rugby club is called Chicken Rugby Rugby Club Chicken. That is, I mean, it's just weird. Chicken rugby. I mean, it it'd be like if you were sponsored by something to do with chicken, like you know what I mean, like one of those shitty local KFC ripoffs, like Just Chicken or Just for Chicken rugby club or chicken tonight rugby club but chicken rugby club uh jack who is a palace fan i'm guessing uh nominates uh the seagulls brighton and hove albion the seagulls because they don't think all oh, right because because palace are called eagles and brighton are called seagulls i mean has there ever been a more tenuous basis for a rivalry in football than that i mean some of them in football are just so fucking weird they like for example well i mean just to finish this one off Eagles and seagulls. I mean, what you're different? You're different kinds of birds. And they go, no, no, it's not just that, Jeff. We are. We're joined by the M23 motorway. I mean, that is not a basis for a fucking rivalry. You know, you want some proper sectarian stuff, <laughs> religious and a history of religious and racial intolerance. That's what. That's what a proper sporting rivalry is. Rangers and Celtic, or like Newcastle and Sunderland, some old fucking union dispute, apparently. But, oh, well, you've, you're, you're linked by a road and a similar type of flying bird. Fucking get over it. Um, the, uh, so David Domain, David Domain says, he, um, in response to last week's show, he said, your French gig story made me chuckle. So I was telling the story about I was gigging in Paris at the beginning of the year and one of the other comics sort of apologised for what a bin fire Britain is and all the French people, they didn't really respond. And then I spoke to a French person afterwards and they said, well, you know, things aren't so good here either, you know. And um, <laughs> But in a French accent, he said it, unlike me. Um, so David says, according to the Global Peace Index, the US, the UK is ranked at 37th most peaceful sovereign state in the world. You think, oh, 37, you know, it's not top 10. It's not, what, there are but roughly 170 countries or something. That's, you know, I mean, that is... You're in the Champions League spots of safety, maybe European conference later, the one West Ham one. Uh, but here's the context. So we're at 37th. France is 67th. OK, so in, in assessing peacefulness, the GPI panel considered crime rates, terrorist acts and violent demonstrations, relations with neighbouring countries, political scene stability and whether small population uh proportion of the population are internally displaced or refugees so overall france is coming in 67 so you know what i mean they say call it gay paris you know maybe we should start calling it gay gay you know peterborough that just that doesn't even make sense Okay, let's do a quick thank you and a fuck you. So I want to say thank you, of course, to the cricket, the England cricket team. 2-0 down in the ashes. If Australia had won at Headingley, that would have been 3-0. There would have been two more games, but they're completely dead rubbers. Australia win their first series in England since 2001, and the dream is dead, it's effectively. You know, the clash of, you know, England playing exciting cricket and Australia just, you know. You know, hard but fear, mate. Hard fear but in fairness to uh, Australia in this match they did play a bit of baseball themselves some very exciting stuff from Mitchell Marsh and Travis Head but England got over the line and I got up in the morning so I was working that evening and I I mean I had to I had to stop at a service station because listening to it on the radio I thought was a genuine driving hazard and um, after England won I rang my wife and I could be honest I, I, I didn't fully cry but I, I, voice broke a little bit. I rang my wife to relay the news, and I was said something like, "England won, babe." It was the voice, "England won, babe." England, 
And um, she said it was fine, but I think I lost a bit of respect there. Um, but I was so excited, I wanted my son to know. And because he it was too late for me and him to watch it in the evening. So I got him up on Monday morning at 7am early to watch the cricket highlights. He's going to hate it, isn't he? He's going to hate cricket. He'll just remember somebody forcing him to do something. And um, I said to my wife, you know, I did that because I just wanted him to know what everyone's talking about at school. And she just took me by the hand and said, Jeff, no one's going to be talking about this at school. Okay. Some people love cricket. Most people just don't. And that, that's true. She wasn't, she doesn't hate cricket herself. She was just being realistic. I had a fuck you to Sadiq Khan and Transport for London. So there was an advert on the tube for a play. It's about a wedding and it had a wedding cake in the poster. And of course, Transport for London can't possibly have a picture of a cake, which is obviously to do with a wedding because it's a wedding cake, because a cake is a very high sugar food, right? So they removed that. They would fearlessly remove that. And, you know, hey, Sadiq Khan's London. We can't stop teenagers getting stabbed, but we can stop them seeing jam and and, and Victoria Sponge. <laughs> I mean, has Sadiq Khan ever done anything which hasn't either cost Londoners money or been some flag-waving moral stance? And what kind of precedent does this set by Sadiq, whereby you're going, all right, we can't have any posters for things with... Uh, high calorie content what about like films like cloudy with the chance of meatballs you go well that's well, fucking red meat red meat a lot of a lot of fat to bind that mince i tell you the film grease i mean that's just unadulterated lard you know fried green tomatoes at the whistle stop cafe it never ends it never ends but sadiq will obviously win again because londoners they like to think that they're evolved voters and they hate everything trumpian but they don't realize that Sadiq is basically, you know, he makes big statements that one group of the population will love and one will hate, and that is the way that he gets elected. Okay, time for the chat of Aaron Bastani now. Like I say, always interesting to speak to people coming at things uh, from different angles, and I think Aaron here, you know, he we disagree on some stuff, we agree on some stuff, but he does offer um, some unique insights, and, and there's a surprise take on Nigel Farage. Right, I'm delighted to say, uh, making his debut on what most people think, is uh, Aaron Bastani. Aaron, welcome to the show. Jeff, thanks for having me. Well, mate, it's good to have you here because I, I've got this, I've always loved the word centrist dad. Now, I I think I first saw that um, on your Twitter feed. So can you f- confirm for us exclusively in those heady early Corbyn days, did you make up that word or were you just part of bringing it to the masses? I don't think I was. I think it was it was probably Matt Zarb who coined it. You know, he's mm-hmm. he coined lots of words, you know, like the melts. I mean, obviously, again, that's a widely used term, but the, the way it entered a sort of political lexicon, I think that was Matt Zarb, the centrist dads. And then it took on a, you know, it took on a, a power of its own, didn't it? And now people are still using it. Corbyn's no longer the leader of the Labour Party, but it's still out there. It's still part of our political idiom. So obviously well, Matt, so- Matt touched on something. Well, I mean, it's sort of almost more relevant today than ever, really, because I suppose it, in a way, is the centrist dads who, who've who sort of got the levers of power. But but in, in your mind, what? because by the way, I see myself as sort of like a right of centre centrist dad. I'm not excluding myself from this category in any way. But, but what, what, what are the things that make up a centrist dad? Well, I, I would sort of actually push back against the word itself. So I, I don't think the centre exists. I don't think it exists in the way that we mm-hmm. use it in, in political uh, language. Now, I think when people say I'm a centrist at normal people, they, they mean to say I have quite moderate opinions. 
I don't have extreme views. I'm willing to compromise. These are all good things, by the way. I'm willing mm. to compromise. Um, you know, I'm willing to borrow ideas from left or right. Let's be pragmatic. When politicians say the centre, or when political journalists say the centre, what they seem to mean is actually a, a host of quite unpopular policies. So, for instance, the centre in this country, if you look at migration law and order, is to the mm. right of the Conservative Party. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I don't agree with all of that, but that's just where we are. And then if you look at things like public ownership, particularly on things like water and, and, um, and rail, well, to the left of the Labour Party. So if you were talking about a genuine centre, ergo trying to represent mainstream opinion, it would look nothing like the officially sanctioned, quote unquote, centre mm. that you see in a lot of political conversation. So I think there's, there's two points here. So there's elite uses of the word centre. And then I think that's how regular people use the word center. And so I yeah. suppose when you, when you say you're a, a center-right, centrist dad, I, I know you mean that second bit. Um, and the interesting thing with that phrase for me is that there's this ambiguity where I think some people think, well, I'm being pragmatic, I'm seeking compromise. Actually, what you're talking about is you, you, you believe in a, in a series from immigration to public services to to you know um law and order you believe in, in in a series of quite unpopular policies so that that's why i think this word centrist is really interesting because it's so ambiguous i think i think you make a good point you know that there's almost like a, a political version of the word and a cultural one yeah. just in terms of the culture one let's think about the the sort of piss takey element of it i mean i'd imagine a lot of the centrist dads would have been watching blur at the weekend i mean what are the what are what the sort of the, the habitual nature? If we were sort of like an Attenborough type thing, what mm. I mean, I guess like me, they're probably gonna gonna read read the Times. They're probably gonna which kind of celebrities they that they're gonna like. I mean, is 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 there a sort of cultural character of the Senate? Oh, oh, for sure, Jeff. So in my mind, you know, you're wearing super dry. Yeah, you, yeah. You you might have a Brompton bike. You might not. I mean, that's more the sort of London element. But you might have a Brompton bike. Uh, you, you're environmentally friendly and conscious, but you won't have an electric vehicle. It'll probably be hybrid. Um, and if you have an, <laughs> too, have too an, far, too far to have full electric. Well, quite. Yeah. And if you have an SUV, you know, it'll be one of those sort of fake SUV hatchbacks. It won't be the full, full Monty sort of, you know, Land Rover. So, so yeah, you'd have a, one of those sort of fake SUVs, which is a bit like a hatchback rather than, you know, go the full Monty yeah. with a. Would it be a pizza oven in the garden? Perhaps is that. Oh my god! Absolutely, you've nailed it, Jeff. <laughs> uni, uni pizza oven. Um, what else? You know, and and then there's some sort of there's some interesting overlaps with you know millennial sort of culture. So I suppose it's probably more likely to wear North Face, Patagonia, mm. Patagonia right, Chile. So, we, so this is useful in a kind of nature documentary. We've described the centrist uh, dad. Weirdly, there's not a phrase centrist mum. Women do get off very lightly in the, these pejorative words. If, if you think about words like dad bod, dad dancing, there's no mum bod. I mean, you you just wouldn't fucking say that to a woman, though. You've got a mum bod. They'd be like, what the fuck you mean? And, and then, <laughs> and then a centrist mum, even though, you know, if you think about Middle England and, and, and who generally pitches to women in elections, you know, those are... You, John Major did very well with women in the 1992 election. So I guess I guess those would have been centrist mums. Is there such a thing? Yeah, it's such a, such a good point. I guess... Electorally, they matter more. Um, but in terms of our our political culture, the you know people who are the, the 
the columnists, um, the pundits on TV. I mean, perhaps they're just more likely to be men. I mean, I don't know, but you're right. That's a really, really good point. I suppose, yeah. like when you when you get the you get the the think tankers and the pollsters, they talk about Worcester woman, and so it's become a bit more. It's become a bit more um, obvious, but that's a good point. Worcester woman working to man, sort of like Gavin and Stacey, but for politics. I mean, you are how, how old are you now, Aaron? Thirty nine. Old old man now. Thirty nine. So it's interesting because like you were part of the the, the sort of. Um, activist group around Corbyn I'm sure that that was you know you've been working uh, for a long time before that but you came to prominence uh, there was a generation of you of Ash Sarkar and Owen Jones and stuff and it was the first time a lot of people were hearing what they would have deemed to be hard left maybe that wouldn't seem like that to you but but in mainstream media um, um outlets I mean now you're 39 is is are there a group of young like harder left guys beneath you that go fucking Bastani fucking centrist yeah, of course. It's uh, it's a funny one because obviously, as you get older, you do become more restrained, more calm. Of course, you, of course, you do. That's just life. Mm. Um, and it is interesting to see as you get older. I, I, I'm as left wing as I've ever been. I'm probably more left wing, but I, I, um, you become more sort of ameliorative, and um, you don't seek out confrontation as you get older, right? Necessarily, unless you, and you mm. might really believe in something. But you know, as you get older, you develop this capacity where you can agree, disagree with somebody rather, and you just think, you know what, I'm just not going to say anything. And obviously, you have that all the time. But I think as you get older, it becomes sort of more the default setting. But with the younger people, you know, in a way, it's good. It's, it's. I think it's really important for young young people to have something to rebel against. So when like you get people who are like 22, they go. Oh, you know, Navarra's crap. Stani's he's a right winger. Fine, you know, let them. Let Did them you find... get called that? I mean, oh, you, you... yeah. That's yeah. hilarious. I mean, if you just hang around long enough, people will just get bored of thinking you're one thing and and accuse you of another. I mean, you literally. What was the name of your book? Was it Luxury Communism? Fully automated luxury communism. Yeah, but that wasn't enough to get you off the hook for being called a right no. winger. No, well, because because you know. You, you might, I mean, Jeff, you said you're centre right. I'm sure you've got some, you know, quite left wing opinions on something. I don't yeah. know what they would be. Mm. And so I suppose for you, it'd be similar, right? You might have a fellow traveller who's on the centre right. Oh, Jeff Norcott, he said this about this. He's bloody, he's a socialist. So, you know, and again, that I think social media exacerbates all of that, doesn't it? It doesn't really, doesn't really allow nuance. I've noticed that you've been reaching out across the divide more, having chats with people like Matt Goodwin and stuff like that. Is that um, who, who would be, I get, or how would you describe him? I suppose to people who don't know who he is. He's got, he sort of puts a, a sort of a, an articulated view of, of what would be called populism, I suppose, right? Mm. If that would be a fair, and, and, but you know, you, you treat him with respect and have those chats. Is that part of, of a change that's happened in you where you just want to be talking to more people essentially? Well, I always think I've treated people with respect, actually. And I've always, I've always found that when I, my mum was a conservative. So th this idea that, you know, she was, I wouldn't call her a Thatcherite, because, you know, what does that really mean in, in 2023? But she voted Margaret Thatcher several times because she was a working class woman and she bought into that aspirational message. And what's weird is that she didn't get on the hatch. It's not like she benefited from right to buy. She was renting until... Mm. 2005 you know she she got one of these subprime mortgages with northern rock but she was she was really into into that so for me it's it's you know i i, I don't view it as you know um personal obviously i can view it as personal if somebody's being personally nasty but just because somebody has a different political view or outlook you know i, I i've said it before i try and seek converts not look for traitors um and so i, I think i've always been like that i think that's an interesting phrase. If I could just pick pick that up, That's a, I've never heard that phrase before. Converts, not traitors. Is that 
Has that been a problem on on the hard left? Perhaps is that there there is a sense of moral certainty that goes with it that that perhaps the ideological zeal can seek you to make can cause you to seek traitors. I think I think most I think most most once you get you know familiar with politics, you realise actually how you said about you know the zealotry and so on. I mean that just that's pervasive in all politics. Really, goes back to the point about centrist. I mean, my goodness, I think the most zealous people I've met in politics actually are quote unquote liberal centrists. So so this idea that you know this kind of fanaticism where you know you don't just you don't want to even discuss things that we disagree with. I, I don't think that's worst of all on the left. I, I just don't. Um, mm-hmm. My experience actually is, you know, I've met some people who are sort of, you know, these quote unquote centrists in the media and they'll say, oh, wow, you're so much nicer than you are online. And I say, well, I don't judge somebody from Twitter. That's just daft. Why would you judge no, no, somebody no, from behind the screen? No. It's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. And then I'll meet people who I think, are, you know, quite nice online. I think oh, this, this person's a bit strange and vice versa. Somebody who might seem a bit, you know, a bit out there, a bit nasty is actually perfectly affable. So I think it's a good rule of thumb. Just don't judge somebody from their conduct on Twitter, unless, of mm. course, you know, it's just you know completely outrageous. The, I mean, you were obviously part of the, the group around Corbyn, and that that was a different place, wasn't it? Because you were trying, it was a radical agenda. Certainly, I mean, a lot of what you were saying then doesn't seem as radical now, but then mm. it was a very radical proposition. Um, and you were fighting, I guess, two kinds of establishments, really, was the sort of like right wing media and the sort of right of the Labour Party. What I've noticed recently, and part of the reason I was keen to have you on the show, is obviously you, you, you guys, you know, on the left left are, are critiquing you know, the 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 centre of the Labour Party now. And, and I, I feel like sometimes your analysis and commentary is the best because you're, you grew up together, if you know what I mean. It's like getting, it's get, it's like getting the gossip from a sibling, if you know what <laughs> I mean. You, I, and, and so I found that, found that there's a, there's a, uh, basically, I suppose the question I'm asking is what, what it's, what's it been like having that shift whereby you've gone from trying to get, you know, a, a properly left-wing Labour Party elected to trying to critique a very centrist Labour Party to have traditional Labour policies? Well, I'd, yeah, the thing is, again, it goes back to that point about the centre. And I love that idea of a sibling having the best gossip. It's probably, yeah, it's a really good, um, it's a really good way of looking at it. You know, we can say it's a centrist Labour Party. Again, that means a multitude of things, doesn't it? Because... I totally understand why Keir Starmer has to appeal to Labour Tory swing voters in the Red Wall. I, to- I totally get it. He has to do mm. that. If you want to win, that's what you have to do. I'm not averse to that in the slightest. What I don't like is the fact that Labour will constantly misrepresent what are very popular policies as being unpopular. So, for instance, on um, water ownership, ownership of uh, mm. rail, energy, now, I'm not expecting them to say, we're going to nationalise all of these things. But what you should be able to do is you need to create some of the mood music and say, look, when it comes to trains, the private sector hasn't been ideal. You know, we, 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 you know, and, and, and talk about it more. Because I actually think there's a, there's a strong chance, for instance, I think, well, who knows? I think there's a strong chance the Labour government will bring rail back into public ownership. It's one of those things they've promised, mm. but I think it's probably the one thing they'll deliver on. But if you do that without setting out why to the public for months or even years beforehand, I I just don't see how that's going to work. Because the first year that those trains are in public ownership and you increase tickets by six or seven percent, you know, which you have to do to provide a better Mm. service or whatever, you're going to get absolutely hammered. So you need to take the electorate and the population on a journey with you as to why this is a good idea and how fixing the problem, what it will look like. 
So yeah, that that's you know I, I would say it's bad politics. Now, right now, Labour are twenty five points ahead in the polls. So who am I to say bad politics? You know, Aaron, you idiot, you you were supporting Jeremy Corbyn. But I think if you want to fix the problems in this country, it's going to be very, very difficult. And I think it's going to require, you know, they've got a lot of political capital right now. And I don't think they're using it as well as they could because, you know, they're not, I think they're frankly not being honest with the electorate about the scale of some of the challenges we've, we've got to face. Well, that, that's the question, isn't it? I mean, you look at what Starmer's professed principles and political orientation was not that long ago. And, and then you just wonder, will he be like this in office? So so he's sort of like, well, he's lying to someone. He either lied to become leader. I mean, he would say that it's evolved because of the financial challenges, which I think is, is, is fair on some level. But or, or, or he's going to, it's like a bait and switch. You know, it, may, it might be like, you know, those film trailers where they they sort of insinuate a film's going to be completely one thing and it's not. I remember that Netflix did a reboot of He-Man recently and... And this is a really weird analogy. But in the end, it was all about Tila. Look, I'm, I've got no uh, issue with strong female role models, but if you're selling me a fucking He-Man reboot, then give me the He-Man reboot. And and I think this is the thing with, with, with Starmer, is there'll, there'll come a point where he's going to disappoint somebody, right? And so I guess your point is, is that, that that could happen quite quickly in office. Well, you know, you had this thing from Wedge Streeting over the weekend, and he said, this is last weekend, and he said, you know, it's better to... It's better for people. Effectively, he's saying it's better for people to have no hope than false hope, um, mm-hmm. which is a you know a strange thing to say. Which is ergo, Labour is not offering anybody any hope. I, I, I think that's right. And also, I should add, I don't think Keir Starmer believes in anything. And when I say this mm. on Twitter or I write about it, people think I'm being nasty or I'm trying to, you know, uh, it's like a political attack. I I, be- I believe it. I don't know what else I can say. I I meant to make these observations. I believe it. You know, he had. A year into his tenure as Labour leader, he was having, this is in the the Times, Sunday Times, he was having private sessions with Charlie Faulkner, who's a Labour law and Ed Miliband, which is basically a dummy's guide to to economics and the economy. You know, I don't think he came to politics really late, which, you know, has yeah, it was 2015, too. right? He became an MP in 2015. And I do think it's kind of strange yeah. on, on aspects of the left whereby they sort of deem themselves to be progressive. But a lot of the reason that they think that Starmer is the finished article is, let's be honest, because he's a straight white guy that speaks in a certain way and he's a sir. So they just imagine him to be a grown up in the room, even, I mean, obviously he had his experience in the CPS, which he doesn't like to mention, you know, but, um, but yeah, you're right. You're right to mention he's he's quite green in terms of Westminster politics. Totally. I mean, and also, I mean, it sounds again to sort of inside baseball people in Westminster. His voice, his voice is awful, right? That's the <laughs> yeah. sort of thing. It's true. I'm sorry, I will not have that. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, I'm no Matt think... Ford, but I'll give it a go. <laughs> people think, oh, you're being nasty, or whatever. Guess what? Margaret Thatcher had the exact same problem. And, you know, she had mm-hmm. a voice coach and, you know, she ended up having a really authoritative, you know, way of speaking. So, and that matters. If you want to, if you want to recalibrate British politics, if you want to be a really popular politician, you, you, you can't talk like that. And I know that sounds mm. mean or nasty or trivial. It is trivial. Some people are trivial. That's the problem. So mm. like, you know, there was a piece by Janan Ganesh in the FT about voice privilege. I thought it was great. It was a great article. I don't agree with much of what Nigel Farage says, but he has this deep baritone from smoking 40 Marlboro a day, you know, drinking. Yeah, and, and a rhythm. There's just a way, well, way that he'll talk and say, Aaron, I know that you will agree yeah. with me on this. And he'll get you. I mean, it happens with comedians as well, where mm-hmm. I've often thought like Mickey Flanagan, one of the great strengths he has is that I'm often thinking I'm going to laugh at whatever the end of this sentence is, because there's yeah. something about the cadence of the way that you're getting there. That's so persuasive. I mean, 
There is a thought that I had with, with Starmer is that he might be the most effective small C conservative in the country. And I think we're talking yeah. a couple of days after that he uh, is allowed to be leaked, lo and behold, that he, he actually hates tree huggers. So there's this interesting quote, which is a bit Alan Partridge that sort of goes, oh, can I surprise you? I actually hate tree huggers. <laughs> and and I just thought, I wonder, I wonder if Starmer, there'll be a sort of beginning of him saying, just a series of abstract, small C conservative phrases like, you know, I blame the parents. You know, mm-hmm. you can't get the staff these days. And mm-hmm. um, he's what he's doing is bit by bit. I suppose the, the, the project is to just say, don't worry. I, I am. I'm, you can trust this guy because he thinks some fairly middle of the road stuff. But meanwhile, uh, 2023, there's absolutely no chance that a Labour government would look at the drugs laws, which we should be ahead of that. Right. I think that's right. And again, it goes to the point of it's 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 politics by press release and it's politics by optics, which is, again, it's no way to run a country. We've been running a country like that for a long time. And it means dysfunction. It means permanent dysfunction. I think you're right. And I, if you say small C conservative, I mean, I think most small C conservatives quite like the countryside. And, you know, mm. they like the idea of nature and they like walking their dog. And, you know, that's that's a very... This is probably going to go down poorly with, you know, people who live in cities. That's a very non-metropolitan thing to do. You take your dog for a walk in a, you know, yeah. a forest or a wood or whatever. That's a, or the beach. That's an experience that lots of people who don't live in cities share. So like, I, I, I feel like, I think you're right. I think he's a small C conservative, by the way. But this whole doing politics by polling and press release, it gives you a big lead. And by the way, we don't know. I think Labour will win a big majority the next election. But we don't know that yet. Things change really quickly. Mm. And you know, I, I I do question if it's for the right of the country, and that's why I support proportional representation. I think it would bring a bit more honesty into politics. I think you'd have, yep, you'd have more overtly right wing politicians. You just would. Farage would be very powerful. You'd have mm. more overtly left wing politicians. But then the electorate knows who they're voting for. They know where they stand, and they think, well, I'll vote for this person, and they'll have to probably negotiate with this person or this person. We have that already inside the two big parties. It's just none of us know what's going on. Well, it's funny because there was that period where Labour were a bit ahead, like enough ahead to be the biggest party. And there was a lot of talk of a progressive alliance. Uh, and which I always thought was, I, always, I think the problem with it, Aaron, though, is it presumes that everybody would vote the same. I, I mean, a lot of the people that were tweeting about it seemed to presume that the way to get a left wing government was by a progressive alliance. What it never took account of was how many people would think, well, I don't fucking want that. And they might yeah. vote in a more right wing way. But I do sort of feel sorry for the Lib Dems in a way. Yet again, they were sort of led along. There was a lot of tweeting of progressive alliance. There was they, they were cultivated. Then then the moment sort of party gate happens and then and then the Liz Trusting happens you barely see that word knocking about anymore because the truth is, you know, most, you know, most people in the Labour Party, they've got no interest in that, have they? That You know, they really want to hold um, power unrestrained. Yeah, there's a few things there. So I, I don't believe in a progressive alliance and the first past the post I, or, the, or the, the tactical voting thing, I think is, I think you're right. And but there are lots, go to, you know, go to Somerset, go to the Southwest. There's lots of conservative Liberal Democrat voters. You know, mm-hmm. and so the idea that they they would be part of a really low, you know, broad left wing alliance, they don't they don't understand what you're talking about. They don't understand what you're talking about. You know, two of the heartlands of the Liberal Democrats in the last century. Obviously, the Liberal Democrats only exist more recently, but in, encompassing the Liberal Party previously too. Two of the heartlands are the Scottish Highlands and the English Southwest. You couldn't get more conservative places. So, so mm. this idea that they're all sort of left wing is just is daft, frankly. And I suppose that the, Labour have a good point on this, which is. 
there is a progressive alliance. It's called the Labour Party because, you know, you have first past the post and it has to be an umbrella for so many disparate, um, disparate views. I, I, I think that's, a, that's, a not, that's not an unreasonable thing, but I just think if you look at, if you look at first past the post of the system, I just don't think it works. Take the NHS. We have this bizarre situation now where it, it's a political football. The Tories will, they do relatively, relative to Labour, I think this is inarguable, they underfund it. They fund it less than the Labour Party do. I know a tremendous amount of funding has gone into it in the last three years, but, you know, big macro scale, they fund it less than Labour. Labour fund it to an extraordinary extent. So you get, you know, Thatcher underfunds it, Blair and Brown overfund it or fund it sufficiently. Then we've had underfunding again. Now Labour is saying, well, we'll come in and we'll increase funding again. And so you're going from famine to feast, zero to 10 on the NHS. And some people say, well, maybe we shouldn't have a health service, which is so subject to political volatility. Or we could just have proportional representation where you have a bit of stability. So you do create something and people broadly agree on it, whether that's the NHS or whether it's a mixed partnership system or whatever. But what we have here is, and going back to your point about drugs, Labour could right. decriminalise cannabis tomorrow and you might have a 10-year Labour government and it's really successful. The Tories come in, they reverse it, you know? What, but what is the fear with, with drugs and legalisation? Because I've often speculated that the moment someone becomes Prime Minister, they don't want to be the one on the front page of the sun, photoshopped with a spliff in their hands, basically, because that might be the way that the right-wing press would go, even if loads of journalists ag agree with it. The easiest angle of attack, right, is whoever's prime minister at the time that you legalise, is you make out they're a wacky-backy, you know, they're, they're, they're a, dope, a dope fiend. And it's so weird because, you know, I've been talking about this on the tour, is that this is one area where the public are all, all almost all ahead of the two main parties, right, in terms of liberality, so what is the boys? I mean, I'm not talking. I, I honestly, I don't think you should legalize cocaine in this country. I just, for whatever reason, I don't think we're equipped to deal with that. <laughs> um, but I think, um, I think cannabis. It's a. It, I, I struggle to understand how in 2023 we're arguably further away than we felt in the late 90s. I, I find that bizarre. Well, I think this is what this was the remarkable thing about Brexit, and lots of people on the left or in the centre left can't accept it. Something happened. People did something. Something radical happened, yeah. Yeah, something happened. And, and the whole point of the two-party system in this country is don't do anything. Don't change mm. anything. And that's and again, it goes back to that point about centrism. That that's one reading of it, you know, moderation, compromise, all good things. Another reading of it is when it comes to elite politics, is don't do anything. Don't don't solve any problems. Whatever you do, don't solve any problems. And and we're looking at the political overhead of that, Jeff, which is 15 years of stagnant wages, not, not enough housing being built. 101 other things I could list, but one of them is, you know, our, our drugs policy, which could be raising tax revenues, it could be saving the police time, and it could just be enhancing civil liberties. But we don't do it because the political elite, oh, we can't, we can't do anything. And that, mm. because they're, they're terrified, they are terrified, like you say, I think, to, to an almost irrational extent now of, of the right wing press. There is this feeling that that Starmer has sort of pushed. I mean, I, I've said in the past, it's almost like he's trolling the left of the party. There's a difference between reorienting, but but literally the only way it was almost like the Tories in the middle of the, the 2010s with um austerity. It became the most successful way of getting polling boosts. So he seems to go back to this well a lot. Is there a degree where he could alienate the left left? enough that it would have an electoral consequence or when it comes when push comes to sub will the opportunity to get the Tories out that will that win the day so even if Labour are fairly right wing 
Well, I think when you say the left left, so I think you're talking about, I mean, the left is, is big, the radical left is big, but you're only realistically talking about max across the country, a couple of hundred thousand people, like radical, radical left who really think about their politics, yeah. you know, political strategy, et cetera. Then of course, around them, you have a much, you know, 10 million plus people who are, who are very left wing, who, mm-hmm. who either don't vote or vote Labour uh, or vote Green or, you know, SNP or whatever. And I think the most part of those people, like you say, uh, will their priority is to get rid of the Tories. I think that's kind of indisputable. Where I do think Labour has an issue is one of the lessons I've taken from the last several years is don't make enemies in politics unnecessarily. If there's no upside, don't make an enemy of somebody. And I think Kistam is doing that right now. And look, that, there might not be a political overhead for, for five years, 10 years. I, don't, I have no idea. But generally speaking, it tends to rear its head eventually. So I, I feel like what he's doing, I think, that's a, again, it's a very good analogy of the whole, you know, oh, we want a little polling, bit of a polling boost, let's bash the left. That's fine when you're in opposition. Try doing it in government. It's not going to be very effective. Now, he's, he's very lucky because the Tories are collapsing. And I wouldn't be surprised if in opposition, the Tories, you know, collapse even more. If you have a sort of repeat of what happens after 97, you know, it takes the Tories, it takes the Tories the best part of eight years to really just get their act together. You know, and, and, and in an alternative universe, they would have done that in eight months. And mm-hmm. I, I think something similar will happen this time, although you know, predictions mean nothing. Um, so the, 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 the trolling thing is concerning. Again, it goes back to the national interest. Like, okay, it's good for your polling numbers, but when you're trying to solve problems in government, how's that going to help anybody? Talking about Jeremy Corbyn. I find the whole thing so trivial and, and nutty, frankly. I find it nutty. We've got so many problems in this country, and yet the whole shadow front bench, the only thing they speak about with real passion is Jeremy Corbyn and somebody's post on facebook you know it's really but is that a legacy sad. of how they would felt that they were treated during that that to- that time you know that they well, were Stone a- was quick Keir Starmer was treated quite nicely. He was made the Brexit secretary. Well, I mean, yeah, but we all forget with the Keir Starmer did some sort of men in black style mind wipe. You know, at, at, there was a point in time where where he, he, his past seems to, to not have mattered. But I, I, I guess that they were I'm just trying to sort of, you know, sort of play devil's advocate a bit. Well, not devil's advocate, but just speak, see it how they would see it, which is that. At that time, they were made out to be not Labour or not left wing or, you know, because they didn't fully subscribe to Corbyn's uh, agenda. You you must admit, I mean, there was a thing around Corbyn. I've never seen a political leader where people chanted their name. And there was a kind of baggage that went with that, that it was a bit there was a zealotry about it in some quarters. I, don't, I honestly disagree. I think that the zealotry. Oh, well, I don't disagree with the first part was the, the ch- mm. chanting happened. But. I think there's, if you're talking about zealotry, David Cameron, George Osborne, after 2010, that is zealotry. When, you know, your program of austerity has been so counterproductive in so many ways, you know. But I mean, still... the, cult, the cult of personality around the person. I, yeah, okay. There's two times I've seen that in politics. I, I saw it up close to Nicola Sturgeon when I met her, not necessarily from her, but just the, the sort of sycophancy around her. And, and, you know, I've been watching politics a long time. And then the moment you see a policy, I mean, look, historically, the moment people chant politicians' names, it, it does ring historically one or two alarm bells. I mean, does it? I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's, 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 people, you know, we live in a free society. People can do they, what they like. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, there was, before Brexit, there was, I remember, what was it called? The, the Brexit, there was some song. Do you remember this? There was the Brexit know. song. You know, whatever people can do what they like, have a bit of fun. I mean, I, that doesn't bother me. And I, the idea that oh well, the the left isolated, you know, mainstream Labour politicians, and now they're getting their own back. People like Yvette Cooper, Rachel Reeves, they were all offered positions in the cabinet. They didn't want to serve in the cabinet. They didn't want to serve in the cabinet, which is their their right to do that. They're allowed to do that. 
But, you know, Keir Starmer was given a very, very, he was given arguably the third most powerful position in the party after leader and, and shadow chancellor. And by the way, I don't know if I can swear on this. Can I swear on this podcast? Yeah. Keir Starmer's positioning on Brexit fucked this country up significantly. And it was purely so he could become leader of the opposition in the long term. That's why he did it. And, and I still don't think Remainers get this, is that the reason why we, we're not in a customs union, the reasons why we didn't have some sort of moderately different things that they would have liked to see is because Keir Starmer engaged in an all or nothing strategy because it was to his interest. And I find that I, remarkable that somebody can do that and then say, country before party, your career came before the country, shut up. Okay, hope you're enjoying the chat with Aaron there. Just to quickly hype something, the book, okay? We're having meetings now. It's coming out in what, less than a couple of months now. Less than a couple of months. So please, 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 if you're, if you're not a patron or whatever, but if you think, oh, I should just do something nice for Jeff Norcott, just go on either Amazon or Waterstones, wherever you get your books, and, and order the hardback copy of my book. That is, it, it's a beautiful thing. It's a, why did I say it like a twat? That's not selling. It's a beautiful thing. I sound like fucking Swiss Tony. A book, guys, is in many ways like making love to a beautiful woman. You know, you've got to open it at the right time. You've got to, I, I don't know any metaphors, so you've got to feel your way to that. You've got to read the situation. <laughs> I'm, I'm struggling here. Just please, but it looks great. The guys, the team have done loads of graphics for it and just laid it out so nicely and it will it will uh it will either teach you a bit more about being a bloke yourself or it'd be a good thing to buy for the bloke that you know and if you buy the book the hardback obviously when i'm doing gigs when i come out afterwards if i see people with hard cap hardback copies of the book i will i will sign your book okay let's make that guarantee now the the it's not one of those stupid american blokes on the advert that's right the jeff norcott hardback guarantee if i see you with the book i will sign that book no Exceptions. Um, can't think of the word exceptions there. All right, let's go back to the chat with Aaron. Do you think that there is a chance that the, the next election, I mean, I've been making this prediction for three years now, but there will be effectively a Jeremy Corbyn party. It might it won't, might not be call, called that, although J, JCP does sound pretty good. Uh, you probably, they probably make a song of it. Do you remember that song? My my dad drives me around his JCB. It'd be another, no, I don't. That could, no, no. That could, well, it'd be this difficult second album syndrome. But you know, I guess when you look at people like Diane Abbott, you look at like figures on the uh, the harder left. Is there is there a, a chance of that, or, or or would he be aware of that that would be perceived of sort of letting the Tories in the the back door? I mean, is there is there enough time? For, for an alternative, a genuine, not I'm not just talking the Green parties, I'm talking a genuine left-wing alternative. So I have, a, I have a line on this, which is, there's a huge political space in Britain for a left-wing party. It, if executed, it could do very well. It could drag public opinion in all sorts of interesting directions. The only problem is the left would be in charge. So, uh, it, you know, it's the, the political opportunities are there, the space is there, but frankly, I mean, there's just, and this isn't the criticism of Jeremy Corbyn, by the way. I think actually there's, there's people who've made far bigger mistakes than him between 2015 and 2019. Um, but it just, you know, you, you don't have the personnel. And I think this goes back to like a historic aspect of it. So I look at people who are younger than me or people my age or even people slightly older. You meet the economists, you meet the bureaucrats, you meet the people that if you had to run a civil service, you think, okay, this person could do this or that, or this or that. 
But mm. there was this, and it's probably because the nineties, right, and the collapse of the Soviet Union, and you know, the collapse of the the left, um, and lots of people, you know, a lot of people in New Labour were, were were former Stalinists, forget socialists or whatever. So there's this weird lag, there's this weird gap where you just don't have the personnel to to execute a project where you're going to really run a party at a top notch level, run a country. So I think I think you know maybe in in 10 15 20 years I think is a different proposition but now no I mean I like I like you know Diane Abbott's Diane Abbott's historical record speaks for itself like the first not the first black mp but the first black female mp as I understand it mm-hmm. first black mp for the labor party um there's some mixed heritage mps who go back further with the liberals and the whigs and whatnot but clearly a bit of a trailblazer and I think she should be commended for that but you know the political instincts of some people on the Labour left, particularly since 2019. Let's let's um, I'll pull my punches. They leave something to be desired, and that's not. I'm not talking about Jeremy Corbyn. Well, it's interesting you say about what I get the sense in a weird way is even if you might not have supported Brexit yourself, is that I suppose you might have had some empathy for the project of Brexit, which was to try to do something radical and to see, you know, what could happen when the establishment mobilise against something. Is, 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 that, is that a fair comment, that there was a, a strange sort of a, a, a low-level empathy? Because, you know, you saw what Corbyn was a radical proposition, whatever you, you know, whatever you think about him, and so was Brexit, and both of those things were manoeuvred against. And I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm not in that sense talking about anti-Semitism. You know, that, I'm not, I don't think those were manoeuvres personally. But I mean, you know, the the depths to which the right wing press were a were willing to portray Corbyn. Yeah, and that's why you know, for instance, there was this thing recently of Farage and his you know debanking, right? And he's claiming that oh, various banks aren't offering me banking products and so on and so forth. I take that really seriously, and I've got people saying, oh, that's Farage. It's good it happened, or he's making it up. And I say, well, actually, these these things matter because I've seen Farage is Farage is an anti-establishment politician. I don't agree with him on very much. He's, he mm. is clearly, he's a very disruptive politician. And I've seen how the establishment behaves with political figures like that on the left. I've seen it. They don't play fair. They are very, very dirty. Now that doesn't mean I care what happens to Nigel Farage, but the point is if you allow a, a default setting where the establishment can, can do what they like to political elements, political actors, high ranking politicians, intellectuals, whatever, they, you know, if they can somehow, if they can somehow remove them or undermine them in sort of political discourse by fair means or foul, and they don't care what it is, I think that's a problem actually. And so, like with Brexit, I voted Remain. I was, I am very sympathetic to Brexit. I think the good thing with Brexit is politicians can no longer blame the EU. You know, it's fantastic right. for the first time yeah. in my lifetime, Tory politicians are being blamed for immigration. Right. I mean, again, I'm not. I'm not on the right. I'm not that. I think we should probably have, I think we should have a more generous asylum policy and then you have a more rational conversation around quote unquote economic migration, but park that, whatever I think is kind of irrelevant here. Because we've left the EU, Tories can't point at Brussels. They're the ones to blame. They're the ones that are accountable to the British electorate. I think that's fantastic. And what Brexit has done is it's exposed how useless large swathes of the political establishment are. That's what, by the way, that's what screwed the Tory party more than anything else is like there's a, there's now like this magnifying glass on our domestic political elite. And like, we're all looking at it, left, right, center, whatever. And we're all going, oh, 
This, they, well, they just mean, they just block. seem to. I guess it comes down in a way to centrist dads and this idea of grown ups in, in in the room was for me that strategically they just played every hand quite badly. If the project was to get a, you know, once if you just accept that once the vote happened, you had to have some sort of Brexit, which I think would be insane to think otherwise, right? Yeah. So the fact that there was this huge stop Brexit, you know, second referendum thing, I, I found uh, crazy. But they at every stage along that process, you know, both with the EU and, and what they gave Cameron to go back and try and parlay, you know, the immediate thought of what could happen after the vote, the where they sort of, uh, I, 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 in my book, I mentioned that it was almost like, you know, on those old 80s game shows where they gamble and go for the car. You know, so they've got like a so the car was effectively revoke, you know, but you yeah. just looked, you thought it's, it's not going to fucking happen. And so so whatever they they might have been right about the economic impacts of Brexit, a whole lot of stuff. But the, the strategy element around, um, you know, how what kind of Brexit we had was an absolute fucking disaster from their point of view. I mean, some of them are smart enough to realize this, but I do think that some of them just walk around thinking grown ups in a room. We'll clean up the mess, but they, they they sort of they have their own version of mess. I think that's totally right. I, I think, again, it's something that I've said before, and it's maybe a bit unpopular. Smarter people, people who work in the academy, people who, who have to think for a living often make more stupid decisions because they come at things with the default position of I'm right because I'm clever. And I think that was what you saw with the Remain stuff. I'm right and I'm clever. All these people I know are clever. And they are you know, clever people. If you're an academic, of course, you're a clever person, you know, in terms of like mm. history or politics, whatever you teach, you know. Um, and I, I think that's the problem is that you come at it with a certain cognitive bias, which is, well, all the clever people think, you know, we, we have to t- overturn Brexit. So it must be the clever thing to do. No, it, it's not clever. If 400, if 400 constituencies vote leave, Forget 5248. If 400 constituencies vote leave, you are going to get smashed in a general election. Out out of what, 650 roughly? Is that the amount of constituencies? Yeah. Yeah. So so getting on for two thirds of constituencies. Yeah, no, it was always going to bite them on the arse. Just going back a bit to that that, um, general election in in 2019. I mean, you were around the kind of Corbyn movement at that time. One of the biggest surprises I've ever had politically is that the the Labour campaign in 2017 was a great campaign, right? Won a lot of support. Uh, The policies were popular. Uh, Great slogan um, for the many. It it all worked. 2019, it was a snap election was the fucking most obvious thing that was going to happen. And yet everyone seemed to be caught napping. And that campaign was dog shit, frankly. I mean, it, the, the, the slogan itself, I think, was it's time for a change, yeah. which literally sounds like, you know, those afternoon adverts for that Michael Parkinson does for changing your life insurance. It yeah. was literally on that level. And then they campaigned without gusto. It I, I just find it, it really it really blows my mind as to why that campaign was so bad. Do you have do you have any theories on that? Well, three points. Firstly, horrible weather and i think that was part of the tory decision around it so you're trying to get the vote out amongst young people be optimistic offer an alternative mm. it's easier to do that when the sun's shining um and you yeah. know you're canvassing and i i saw that does sound to- like the aussie the aussie's making a cricket excuse there no i think not, a, lot, I genu- a lot of cloud cover <laughs> no i genuinely think that that probably was one percent you know labor got 32 percent. Mm. i genuinely think if you have that election in the yeah. summer they get and that sounds daft but then the majority of 80 goes to you know 55 or whatever and then so let's get to the serious points which is um, I think that was one variable. Another variable was the Facebook algorithm had changed. Again, that's not going to change the outcome, but I think that was probably one or 2%. I'm going with the low hanging fruit here before people think, you know, 
think I'm being dark. Well, I mean, to be honest, that that's that now I like that one because that sounds like the kind of excuse I would make for my follower numbers. I'm like, look, they just they don't favor me. It's not it's not my kind of platform. Well, you, there are articles if you look at it that the, the most shared articles in the 2017. It feels like a different world now, Jeff. Mm. The most shared articles in 2017 were like evolved politics, the canary, like it was non-legacy outlets. Yeah. 2019, you've gone back to a certain default. Do you just have? I mean, I know this because at Navarra Media we, we have a Facebook page, you know. So I, I know I know how the algorithm changed, but on the the big things. So I've t- I've given you two things which are like maybe like one percent, right? On mm. the big things, Brexit Party, massive, obviously, um, because they're they're contesting seats where where well where, where it matters for Labour, but not for the Tories. That's a really big thing. But then I think on the on the sort of big, if I'm sticking the knife in with Labour, the first was um, uh, a recency bias. Well, we did we did it we did it by the seat of our underpants in 2017. We can do it by the seat of our underpants in 2019. Like, no, you're going to need a plan. You're going to need a strategy. Mm. You know, you can do you can pull that off once. To pull it off twice, absolutely no chance. And then I think, sadly, I do think a lot of people on the Labour left they bought they bought the Remainer Kool Aid, which was the majority of the country wants to stop Brexit. The Tories won't go, you know, they won't call an election because the Brexit party will run. There's so much chaos. Um, actually, leave seats, leave voters now would vote remain. I think they bought a lot of the Kool-Aid. So they're like, we've had loads of sort of inertia in politics with Theresa May. And they're like, the next two years will look like the last two years. And you're completely right. Boris Johnson came in and what the hell are you talking about? No, we're going to have a general election. <laughs> 400 seats voted leave. I'm, I'm very happy to have a general election. So that was the that was the big thing for me. And I, I've seen people in Westminster, very clever people. They they go to that place for six months and they, you know, the and, and that's the thing I like about Dominic Cummings is that he made an intentional effort to be his own person. Again, you don't have to agree with that. But if you're a left-winger or if you're a Scottish nationalist or whatever, if you want to execute your political project, you're going to need somebody like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that was the big problem for Labour is they bought a lot of sort of establishment Kool-Aid on, on, on Remain. One, one last point here is uh, just to end on, on a slightly frivolous note is I was trying, I was going to ask you like, who does, who's the hardest bastard in the Labour Party? Like it, it, we often talk about hypothetical political fights here. Like if, if it came down to a, a scrap in a pub car park, I've often thought like when I look at John McDonnell and I know you've been around the man, he just gives me the willies. Like he just looks like his look is like a right hook. I mean, I, I, I'm talking about age adjusted here. So, you know, like when you fight on on a PlayStation boxing yeah. game, they all take them back to their prime. I mean, if it just came, if it absolutely came down to it, who would you want uh, in your corner if it went off at a Weatherspoons? Ian Lavery. Ian Absol- Lavery? No doubt about it. You know, Ian Lavery, he was on the minor strike when he was, I think he was, he was a young man. He was like 18 or something. Yeah. Ian Lavery was one of the first people to be arrested on the minor strike. He was arrested on the first day. He wasn't even a minor. He was like an apprentice or whatever. You know, he was a, uh, he was, a, he was nicked on the first day because he punched somebody. So I hope he doesn't those, good la- that. Th- th- those, those are good labor credentials. I mean, that is, it's weird. I mean, you spoke about people's voices and, and the public, I mean, it's no surprise and it's completely legitimate politically. The public respond to people, right? So they respond to your voice. And it was, if you look on paper before John Prescott punched that bloke in the face, right? If you said, what is the what is the political out? You know, if you'd have offered that to Blair and Alistair Campbell at the time, said one of your top people could punch a member of the public in the face, they would, they would mobilise everything to stop that happening, wouldn't they? Yeah. 
when yeah. it happened, it established him in the hearts and minds of the British public forever. So maybe that's Ian Lavery, you know, if it comes around, maybe that should be his pitch. When the when Labour win the election and after a year they junk Starmer because they want an actual left-wing thing, just if anybody can find video footage of Ian Lavery laying out somebody at a minor strike, I think that could win it. Most people think. I mean, obviously, I, I say to people, you know, there might have been people that during the Brexit in the Corbyn years that looked at the Navarra and, and people like yourself and Ashley used to get wound up and stuff. I do think that you guys, in terms of analysis now, are in a, a really, a really interesting position. And I think if Labour get in, you know, definitely people, it's worth um, you know, checking out some of your stuff. Is there is there anything in particular you'd like to direct people to? Oh, Jeff, that's really kind. Um, well, we've got our website, navaramedia.com. You can follow us on social media, um, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. I think YouTube's probably the best spot. You know, we do a daily show there at 6 p.m. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. Or you, or you could just tune in just to have your blood boiled. It, it's good to feel alive, isn't it? Uh, Aaron <laughs> Bastani, thanks very much for being on What Most People Think. Cheers, Jeff. Okay, that was the chat with Aaron Bastani there. So, you know, if you're interested in where he's coming from things and if you want to, uh, you know, if you want to challenge your own view further, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not I'm not a Navarro media guy, but I do think when it comes to particularly looking at the Labour Party and stuff, it's, it's interesting to have a, a range of opinions to draw on. Now, listen, with the podcast, if you leave it a five-star review on iTunes, obviously, please leave five-star reviews anywhere you can, whether it's, Fucking Podbean, Flick the Bean, fucking Spotify, Notify. There's probably a place called Notify. All that stuff. The ones I can access are on iTunes. So there's a really nice review here by Dre the Shadow. I can't read the whole one because it's long. Uh, I love the fact that there's a prompt paragraph. Uh, da, 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 da. I think I've been listening from the first one, and this is essential listening. Comedians, the right sort of comedians, have become generals in the culture war frontline and many have paid the price in terms of their career fuck i love this this is so dramatic jeff shows why this is so by embodying eloquence great communication and an ability to see the human condition and point out its contradiction and flaws through the vehicle of human fucking hell mate you do you want to give me a quote for my book i love that uh this is from lorraine the pain lorraine the pain love this podcast has everything some of the guests I don't agree with, but will always listen. Be prepared to think. Absolutely spellbound with the Dominic Frisbee song brought tears to my eyes. This current episode, I love listening to all the cricket stuff. As a woman, hated when people label themselves. I love most sports. My husband doesn't. So I never get to chat about it with anyone. Felt like we were chatting with Jeff. Um, this is from St. Bearstow. Okay, I get where this is coming from. This is clearly from an Aussie. I, Jeff Norcott, would like to make very clear that despite my recent comments, the reason England have lost six of the last seven Ashes tests is that Australia clearly have better batters, better bowlers, a better wicketkeeper, and a much better at fielding. Well, this all made a lot more sense when you sent it on Wednesday of last week, didn't it, St. Bairstow? if that's your real name. I mean, I do think Australia overall probably are a bit stronger in every department. But I think that the Aussies are rattled. They're fucking rattled, aren't they? They weren't expecting it. They never expect it. They always look a bit shocked. I must say that. I mean, it's sort of probably why they win so much, the Australian cricket team. But when you see their post-match interviews when they've lost, they are uh, they're fucking shell-shocked, aren't they? Uh, yeah, oh, look, uh, they start malfunctioning, don't they? Ah, oh, look, uh, look, hey, look, yeah, it's pretty ordinary, pretty ordinary. Um, this is from Swifty5544. I thought I'd write a review for Jeff as I've been listening since lockdown and never got around to it. Now, if you wonder 
why I keep going on about stuff. This is why. People have busy lives. This guy has been listening uh, to these since 2020, February of 2020, and he's finally got around um, to leaving a review. Oh, he he wants his in a northern accent. Having grown up in industrial northwest and now relocated to Lake District, I know this is a Yorkshire accent, I feel Jeff's pain of hanging on to his working class roots whilst looking out my window at trees and fields and watching my children eat hummus, for fuck's sake. I mean, that was the most... You might not be a Yorkie, but that was probably the most... Um, the most Yorkie thing ever said. Uh, this is from Pop Cult 1997. Funny, self-deprecating show from one of the best stand-ups in Britain. Again, I'm fucking using these quotes, mate. Uh, and then the last new one uh, says, I don't really do... Po-. This is from Casual Ken. Oh, he's Casual Ken, everybody. I don't really do podcasts. I'm a dinosaur. But my mate told me to listen to this, so I did. And it was good. I'll definitely listen again next week. I'm sure I saw Jeff and his wife walking through Covent Garden a couple of months ago when I went to see Lehman Trilogy at the theatre, but I could have been wrong. That was good as well, but it's finished now. <laughs> Casual Ken. I love the way Casual Ken <laughs> communicates. Like In his review of my podcast, he went completely off topic and basically ended up going, yeah, it was a very good play, actually, but um, sadly it's finished his run now. But um, Anyway, who knows, it might it might do a smaller run at some of the National Theatre. Maybe corn exchanges, even. In fact, you know, some places.